Just Jesus number two, uh, the biggest, the most common, the most often heard, the most popular, total misunderstanding about Jesus is that Jesus was a good man or a good human teacher. And yet you will have heard it, I have heard it over and over again. And my single aim this morning is to help us be absolutely certain that whatever else Jesus was and is, he certainly could not have ever been just a good man. A total misapprehension. And it reveals our ignorance of him, our popular understanding that has no basis in truth. Let's uh, get into this by looking at that passage together. Luke chapter 5. Page 1032, if you're using the Bibles uh, in front of you. 1032, Luke chapter uh, 5. And if anyone knows who stole my glasses, let me know. At least I'm using Burlington Blue, hey? Luke chapter 5, page 1032. We know the story. A man is brought through the roof to the foot of Jesus to be healed. Verse 15 sets the scene for us, but news about him spread all the more. So the crowds came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. People were coming then looking to be healed of their physical ailments. Verse 17 tells us that the day in which our story is set, Jesus was involved with lots of healings. At the end of verse 17, the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. It was another one of those healing days. There have been many of them. We now move from the general context, which is that Jesus was healing everybody, to the particular situation of this paralyzed man who was lucky enough to have some nice friends. Some of his friends came carrying a paralytic, verse 18, on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. What healing was that man looking for and why were his friends bringing him? That man, we read, was a a paralytic and he was, in keeping with so many others who were being brought to Jesus, looking to have his legs enable him to walk again. They were bringing him to Jesus in the hope that he might be healed. Why? Because the power of the Lord, we're told, was present for him to heal the sick. So they carried him and there was a crowd, so we know the story. They bypassed the crowd, went up onto the flat roof using the outside staircase, dug a hole in the roof and lowered the man down right in front of Jesus. The man had a physical need and so they tried as best they could to get him to the healer. But with one sentence, which is absolute pure genius on behalf of Jesus, he shows everyone that this man, whom they thought had a physical condition and needed a healer, had a much more serious spiritual condition and needed not a healer, but a saviour, and that he was that saviour. It's a brilliant, pure piece of genius. Suddenly, unexpectedly, the situation completely changed. I would have loved to have been there. The atmosphere must have been electric. You could have cut it with a knife. You see, everyone can see this man's problem. They probably all knew him anyway. He was just the local lad. He was the boy who'd never run, who'd never kicked the ball, who'd never climbed a tree. This was the man who'd never walked. Everybody knew his problem. Everyone knew what he needed. 
And everybody knew how much he needed it. Maybe that's why no one seems to complain about the hole in the roof and the jumping the queue. Even the hardest of hearts would have been happy for this man to walk. And Jesus says, look, look a little harder and see that this man, in keeping with all men, has an even greater problem. This man's greatest need is not to walk, but to have the wrong in his life forgiven. Yes, says Jesus, I can make him walk, but much more importantly, I can forgive his sins. So when he came and Jesus saw his faith with this pure, inspirational twist, Jesus says, hey, you know, friend, your sins are forgiven. You came here because you needed a healer. I'm telling you need, you need a saviour. And I am that saviour. Let's just pause there for a moment. If you've got your Bibles open in front of you, which I hope you have, you'll see that it's very early on in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry only really gets underway full steam in, Acts, uh, sorry, in Luke chapter 4. So halfway through the previous chapter. And very quickly, Jesus becomes known as a healer. And all the people are flocking to him to have their sicknesses and ailments and diseases cured. Because that's what a healer offers. That, though, is not enough for Jesus. It would never be enough for Jesus to be known as a healer. He is wanting to point them to their greater need and his greater provision. Their greatest need was not to have their sicknesses restored, but to have their wrong, their sins forgiven. His greatest provision was not to be their healer, but to become their saviour. And as the only one who can save is God, he must be that God. And in this brilliant single phrase, he makes this known. Now, you might say, Simon, you're, you're reading far too much into this particular situation. The people wouldn't have thought of it like that. Oh, yes, they would, and oh, yes, they did. You see, if we press play again and look at what happened next in verse 21, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? There is no saviour, they're saying, other than God. Who on earth does this guy therefore think he is? Make no mistake, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. In proclaiming himself not as healer but as saviour, able to heal the sickness of the soul as well as the body, he was saying nothing less than he was God himself. For only God can forgive sins. And they all knew it. And Jesus pushes the point home with a little tease, almost uh, a taunt, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. In other words, Jesus, I, I can do it all. I, sure, I can make this man walk, but much more importantly, I can forgive his sins. There is nothing that I cannot do. I am God and I am above all else and all things. And just to prove his point, he says to the uh, man, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is verse 24. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Genius. This man suddenly walking proof that Jesus heals, but more importantly, that he saves. That Jesus is a prophet among them, but more importantly, that he is God the only God who saves. 
I'm going to ask the musicians to come up because in a moment I want us just to seize the moment of savouring that this Jesus so early on in his ministry said, you've got to understand this. I've come not to be your healer, but to be your saviour. And they go, but only God can save us. And Jesus goes, I am that God. I am that God. Let's savour the moment as we sing together. Our God is mighty to save. Everyone needs compassion. The kindness of a saviour. Let's stand. Uh, that was just the warm-up. The real sermon is, uh, is coming now. Because I want to ask the question, whether it, is it only there, is it only there that uh, Jesus makes this thing about being God and being the only God? Or is it much more than that? I want us to see that Jesus repeatedly, unapologetically and emphatically declared himself to be the one and only true and living God. It's a staggering, startling claim for any human being to ever make. In fact, in history, hardly anybody has made that claim. A few weird cult leaders, maybe, that took a few deluded followers to the grave with them. And Jesus, whose impact on the world has been unprecedented and in whose wake, <coughs> excuse me, we are still being tossed today. So I want to look at 11 ways... Jesus said he was God. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, I cannot believe he's got an 11-point sermon. <laughs> I love it when he preaches for ages. He could go on all day. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, Bible's open. We're going to work hard together. If this is true, if Jesus is the one and only God, it's the most important thing we could ever think about this morning, isn't it? There is nothing more important. If it's a load of rubbish, think very hard about it this morning and just walk away. But it is the most important thing and deserves our attention. We've seen two already. The first one is Jesus said, I forgive sins. Friend, your sins are forgiven. And the Bible is clear and the culture in which Jesus was uh, living in was clear. Only God could forgive sins. Sin, above all else, was an offence against God. If I hit you, I have sinned against you. But much more importantly, I have sinned against God in whose image you are made. So when David and Bathsheba, remember David the king in the Old Testament, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he had Bathsheba's husband killed to try and cover up his crime. So in every sense, David's sin was against Bathsheba and her husband. But David said no, reflecting on it, full of remorse, he said that sinning against them pales into insignificance compared to the sin which was against God, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If sin is truly against God, then only God can truly forgive sin. Jesus knew that. Those religious types knew that. So as soon as he said, your sins are forgiven, they go into overload. They go, what? He can't do that. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus doesn't back down, back away, back out, but heals the man just to confirm the point he's making. It's brilliant, isn't it? And he declares himself to be God, the only one who can forgive sins. No other religious leader has ever made this claim. They say, if you do such and such, this, that or the other, then God will forgive you. Jesus is altogether different. He says, I forgive you. 
Now think about it with me for a moment. Remember I'm wanting us to always remember that this idea that Jesus was a good man is just totally inappropriate when it comes to thinking about him seriously. Think about it. If Jesus is promising to forgive sins but can't, if hundreds of millions of people are heading towards death, trusting Jesus to forgive their sins but he can't, then he's not a good man. He's a deplorable man who's tricked millions into trusting him and given them a false hope, the forgiveness of their sins. He cannot possibly be good if he's saying he can forgive our sins when actually he can't. Okay, first one done. Point two. Not so bad, is it? Moving on. Second thing Jesus said is there in the passage. He said, I am the son of man. Jesus referred to himself over and over again as the son of man. He uses it about 80 times in the four Gospels, the four stories about Jesus, and it occurs in all four of those stories. At the heart of the title, the Son of Man, is the idea of God coming as a man. To understand it, we need to look at an important prophecy in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7. You can turn to it, but it will be on the screen. And this is what Daniel saw in his vision that became really important for the Jews. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." It's a vision in the Old Testament of the Messiah coming at the end of time to wrap up history, coming on the clouds of heaven. A picture of a a Messiah that has what? That has uh, all glory and sovereign power there in verse 14, attributes that only God can have. Then he will be worshipped by the nations and men of every language will worship him. The Bible is very clear. Only God himself is ever allowed to be worshipped. But here they're saying, this son of man will be worshipped as God. And that he will reign over a kingdom that will never come to an end or be destroyed. Now for hundreds of years, the Jews are going, when is this going to happen? Where is this man? When will it come to pass? When will the Messiah be here? And now Jesus, full on, unambiguously, identifies himself with this deep hope and longing in God's people. I am, he says, the son of man. These religious leaders are about to self-combust. And who can blame them? How dare he say that this Jesus, this son of Joseph, the carpenter, is the son of God. But over and over again, Jesus refers to himself very simply, very straightforwardly, as the son of man. And so he's declaring himself to be worshipped as the only true God whose kingdom will come and will have no end. Wow. And then there are loads of times outside of this story Thirdly, Jesus said, I came down from heaven. Most of humanity is in the grip of wanting to get to heaven. That's what most people want. If there is a heaven, I would like to get there, please. No one on earth has been there, but a number of people claim to have or have had near-death experiences. I don't know whether you've noticed, but it's quite a celebrity kind of thing to have a near-death experience. It obviously boosts your career somewhat. Peter Sellers, Elizabeth Taylor, Burt Reynolds, even Ozzy Osbourne all claim near-death experiences. There are others who claim a more spiritual, significant death experience. Muhammad, for example, the Muslim prophet, 
claims that he was taken on one occasion from the earth up into heaven. It happened at the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, the third most holiest site for Muslims, also a very special place for Christians. And it was there in heaven, Muhammad declares, that Allah told him to tell Muslims to pray five times a day. So Muhammad claims that from the earth he went once into heaven. Jesus makes a much, much, much more audacious claim. Jesus says, I didn't just go there once, I have come from there. That place is my home. And whilst religions talk about people ascending to God through good works, the right karma and all that stuff, Jesus says, no, I am different. I am from heaven and I have come down to earth. My home is heaven. And the only one with the right to come from heaven, who is there in the beginning, who is there by rights, is God himself. Fourthly, Jesus says, well, uh, I'm saying that I'm God and you would expect me if I'm God to do the kind of things that God does. And Jesus says, look, I do do the work of God. Remember John the Baptist? Camel's hair, eating locusts, all that. He ends up in prison. It's not a great story for him. And he's there in prison by himself and he's beginning to wonder whether he's got it all wrong. He goes, is this Jesus that he staked his life on? Is he really the one? He's full of doubt. He's probably full of self-doubt. And he sends word to Jesus. And we can read about this in Matthew chapter uh, 11. It says, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who has come or should we expect someone else? Listen to what Jesus said in reply. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Hey, look, John, at what I'm doing. I'm doing the kind of things you would expect me to do if I had come from God. I am doing God's stuff. This was not the only time that Jesus referred to his works, his miracles, as a justification for who he was. You see, Jesus was constantly getting accused of blasphemy, claiming to be God even though he was a mere man. Let's be really clear. Jesus was not nailed to the cross because he hung out with loose women and homeless guys. He was not nailed to the cross even because he cured a few people of diseases here and there. He was nailed to the cross because in the opinion of his enemies and those who were his friends, he consistently and constantly claimed for himself to be God. So Jesus in this next verse is being accused of blasphemy. Uh, John chapter 10, why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. That's the accusation. Why then do you accuse me? Then it goes on, verse 37, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. Then he says, verse 38, but if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Believe the miracles because they show that I'm in God, that God's in me. There is no difference, no separation between me and God. I am God doing the work that God would do. He says, you're getting all angry with me about what I'm saying, but look at my life. 
I'm doing only stuff that God can do. I speak to the wind and it stops. I heal a man born blind. I open uh, the eyes of a man born blind. I even raise a widow's son, the centurion's dead daughter, or even that aristocrat Lazarus came back from the dead. Look at my life. It's congruent with my claim. I am God because I do the works of God. Not surprisingly, the people were amazed and they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Everyone knew in the Old Testament the only person that could control the wind and the waves was God himself. Jesus said he was God. Fifthly, by actually saying, I am God. Look at Mark chapter 14 with me, page 1022. Get your Bibles uh, open again in front of you and uh, a few too many verses for them all to be on the screen. And I'd like you to know that, uh, that it's there. It's there. I'd like you to see it with your own eyes. Mark chapter 14, page 1022. And I'm going to start reading at verse 61 in just a moment. So 1022, Mark 14, verse 61. Jesus is under oath, okay? It's the law court just before his death. He's on trial. You can imagine Jesus, the irony of it, Jesus holding the scriptures in his right hand and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, me. Look what happens. Jesus' life is at stake. They're sharpening the nails for his crucifixion. Now is the time, if ever there was a time, to shut up, to back down, to to calm it a little bit, to come up with a compromise or something or another. Again, the high priest asked him, here we go, verse 61, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. (laughs) And then Jesus quotes Daniel 7, just in case there should be any doubt. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and all that stuff, at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Are you God? Yep, that's me. Okay, let's kill you then. This was not the first time by any means that Jesus had said this. John chapter 10. Uh, Verse 30, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. You might say, oh, well, perhaps they didn't understand what he was saying. No, again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. What was the penalty of blasphemy? Stoning. They knew what he meant. They knew what he was saying. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? And they say, no ambiguity. We are, stoning, we are not stoning you for any of these. We're not stoning you for the miracles. We're not stoning you because you hang out with loose women or, or, or feed homeless people. We're, we're not stoning you because you're a nice guy. We're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy. Why? Because you and me, a man, claim to be God. And just in case there's any doubt, there was another time he was talking to the people and Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Any ambiguity about what he meant? No, because look what they did. They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself. You see, Jesus is saying, you think Abraham is a really cool guy, right? And they did. Abraham was like the father of their faith. Jesus is saying, you think Abraham's a really great guy? And they go, yeah. You all worship Abraham's God, right? They go, yeah. Jesus says, I am that 
God. Oh, they were livid with him. Absolutely beside themselves. They picked up stones, ready to stone him. No mistake what they understood. Now, this little phrase, I am, is uh, really important. Okay? We're going to spend just a little bit of time on this. It's very tempting to fall asleep, just to switch off, tune out. It's a bit heavy going, just for a couple of minutes. But I want you to see the real significance of this phrase, I am. And then the next five or six go quite quickly, okay? And we're home and dry. All right? You don't believe me, do you? (laughs) With good reason. Okay? Right, this one, really important. I am God. This phrase, I am. Stick with it for a moment, you see? I am is all over the Gospels. And a particular Greek phrase called ego eimi. And it's used over and over again. And it's a really forceful I am. And the force of it is often inappropriate for what's being said. And I'll come to that in a moment. It occurs lots of times on the lips of Jesus. And our English translation cannot really do it justice. Because when we try and do it justice, our English doesn't make sense. So there are many of these emphatic, absolute, in fact, emphatic, I am statements. When Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman, our English Bibles read, then Jesus answered, I who speak to you am he, I'm the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. But literally, literally in the Greek, it says Jesus declared, I who speak to you am. Literally, I am who speak to you. But obviously we can't write that in our Greek because in our English because the publishers go, whoa, that doesn't make sense. And so they give it a natural English meaning. But it loses something of the strength of what Jesus might have been saying. And this occurs over and over again. To the disciples in the boat, Jesus said, it is I am, don't be afraid. Your NIV will say it's me, don't be afraid. But literally, it's I am, so don't be afraid. And so it goes on to the Jews in Jerusalem. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. Now you'll notice the NIV helps us here by putting those words in brackets to try and make sense of it. But hear the force of what's being said. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. It's literally what it says. On another occasion, Jesus said uh, to his disciples, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. The English can't cope with it, so it has this little bit in brackets to try and explain what's going on. And and there are lots of these. I can email you a full list if you're uh, suffering from insomnia or interested in some peculiar way. Now, there are other types of I am sayings as well in the Gospels that you might be more familiar with, predicate emphatic I am sayings. And you're more familiar with these. Seven really important sayings on the lips of Jesus. Interesting that it should be seven, which of course is the divine number. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. Why am I stressing all this? You can see there's this huge emphasis on Jesus going, whoa, I am. The reason is found almost right back at the beginning of the Bible. Right back at the beginning of the Bible, God is trying to draw a people to himself that he can bless so that they can then be a blessing to all the nations of the world. That was the plan, and he called the Jewish people to himself. But they'd ended up in slavery in Egypt. So God's got to rescue them from slavery in Egypt in order to make them a people that will worship him, a people that he can bless so that they can go and bless others. And God's plan for rescuing them was to send a man named Moses. So God turns up one day at Moses' work. Moses was a shepherd and in a field. God shows up in the form of a burning bush. 
In fact, if you read it accurately, it says a, a bush that wasn't, was on fire but not actually burning. And God spoke to him out of this bush. And Moses doesn't really want to go. I mean, who does, you know, when God asks you to do something difficult? And Moses is thinking, if I go down, a mere shepherd boy, and go to Pharaoh, the king, probably the most powerful man in the world, hey, by the way, can I have those thousands upon thousands of slaves back, please? He's going to tell me to clear off. Who shall I say has sent me? And this is what God said in response, really important. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say. Say, I am has sent me to you. It's the closest we ever get to God giving himself a name. It's from this phrase that we get the, the, the name Jehovah, so holy that the Jews wouldn't actually mention the exact word. You get this four-letter word, Yahweh, called the Tetragrammaton, precious and holy to the Jews, almost unmentionable, because it got so close to calling God by name, I am. Jesus comes along and can't shut him up about it. He says over and over again, I am, I am. I am, I am. All over the Gospels. He's using this, ego am I, and then these uh, absolute sayings, I am, I am. Have you got it yet? I am. Now, now, you've got to understand that Jewish ears were tuned, really tuned to something like that. Imagine me swearing something really foul here in church. Immediately you go, ping, because it would seem so disgusting and deplorable, and it would be. But that's how it would have felt to those first hearers. Jesus going, hey, I am, I am, it's me, I'm the one. No mistake for those and they were getting angrier and angrier and angrier. Have you ever wondered why they got so angry with a man that just loved people and hung out with the down and outs that they nailed him to a cross? Have you ever wondered why they wanted to shut him up? This is why. Because of all that he claimed to be, I am, I am. It's an extraordinary claim, isn't it? To be God, and hardly anyone in history, as I said, has ever mentioned it. In fact, no one with any notoriety other than Jesus. All the great leaders, Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, Gandhi, they all say, I'm not God. Jesus goes, I am. I am. Excuse the pun. Okay, number seven. We're going to do these quickly. I've never sinned. Can you imagine anyone getting up and saying, hey, I've never sinned? Imagine me standing here on a Sunday morning and say, hey, I've never sinned. I wouldn't have drawn breath before Kerry would have got up and said, you've got to try living with him. And my, ki- and my kids would go, who's he trying to kid? And the rest of you would go, that guy's totally lost it because you can point to times and situations, opportunities and moments when I've been less than a perfect human being, surprisingly or not. It would just be bananas, wouldn't it, for anyone. And imagine to say, hey, you can know that I'm telling the truth about what I believe in because I don't sin. It's a preposterous idea for anybody to say that. Jesus said it, and nobody challenged him. Jesus said it, and in fact his friends, those who knew him the most, you know, your mates, they know what you're like, they know how terrible you are really. John, one of Jesus' best friends, said, and in him is no sin. And then Jesus' brothers, James and Jude, who came to believe in him and became significant pastors in the early church. Now, if anyone knows what's wrong with you, it's your brother or your sister, huh? You know, they know how crabby you are in the mornings. They know what you're really like at home when the doors are shut. But James and Jude said, no, this Jesus was altogether different. Mary, his mother, if anyone knows the boy's failings, it's his mum. Mary became part of the early church and believed in him. 
If anyone knew his flaws, it would have been her. Even Judas, who betrayed him, Pilate, who sentenced him, the soldiers who executed him, and the prisoners who died with him, they all said, he's an innocent man. And because he'd never sinned, he will judge all as God. Number eight. Jesus said, I'm going to judge all people. I'm going to judge all people as God. Now, most often you hear when a behavior is challenged, especially in our society, you can't judge me. You're no better than me. Who are you to judge me? Heard that? Used it? We've all been there. Who are you to judge me? You're no better than me. Jesus goes, I am, and I'll judge you. I'm better than you. I'm without sin. Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. And Jesus said, hey, you can pray to me as if I'm God. I'll answer prayer as God. I, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son of Man may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will uh, do it and so on. I can hear all the prayers, says Jesus. I am eternal, outside time, and can be prayed to as God. Now, if Jesus is not God, this is a really cruel thing, don't you think? How can Jesus be a good person if all around the world today, people in hospitals, people at gravesides, people at crisis, people in trouble, will be calling out the name of Jesus? All around the world, children will lay down on their pillows at night, praying to Jesus. Dying people will cling to the name of Jesus today. Clinging, hoping, looking to Jesus. If he's not God, we are wasting our time and he is despicable, deplorable, a disgusting person who has betrayed us at every level. If he's not God, he's certainly not a good man. And then he said, by the way, I'm the only way to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was narrow and exclusive, singular and exclusive. What about other religions? He said, no, nope, I'm the way. What about other lifestyles? He said, no, I'm the way. What about those of no faith, unknown faith, unsure faith? He said, no, I'm the way. Christians, literally Christ ones, people of Christ, those who follow him, have to be narrow because Jesus was narrow. As soon as we accept Jesus who was a way, a way, a truth, a life, a broad Jesus who is for me but not necessarily for you or for anybody else, we've made Jesus in our image. We've made Jesus conform to our thoughts. We've made him acceptable to our culture. And we face the same anger that Peter faced last week when Jesus said, hey, get behind me, Satan. You haven't got in mind the works of God, but the works of man. He was singular and exclusive. They did not kill him because he told cute stories. This is why they killed him. Because he singularly, exclusively claimed to be God and the only way. He was narrow because he brought within the narrow way. There is a broad way, but it leads to destruction, the Bible says. And then 11thly and finally, Jesus goes, well, actually, I've got authority and supremacy over all peoples. Even after his death, he continued to say, I'm in charge around here. All things, all things in heaven and on earth are mine. All political parties, all races, all genders, all beliefs, all nations, all religions, all cultures, a category by himself as the one and only true God. Jesus says, I rule over angels and demons. 
I rule over all sexual orientations, the gay and the straight, the Buddhists, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Unitarians, the atheists, the agnostics, the Scientologists, men, women and children, nations, kings, kingdoms, princes, queens, uh, whatever else, philosophies, postmodernism, modernism, existentialism, naturalism, anything you can think of, I rule over it all. It's totally to misunderstand Jesus to say, well, he was a really nice guy who did lots of nice things. It makes absolutely no sense with the four stories that we have about him in whom we're putting our trust. C.S. Lewis, the great author, summed up the situation and his words have been repeated over and over again. And Without shame, I repeat them now. They're worth repeating. Lewis said, well, he was either a liar... And if we said, if he said all of that stuff and it wasn't true, then he's not a good man, he's a despicable, a deplorable man. And millions are putting their trust in him in total vain. Or if he's not a liar, he said such mad things, this guy was an utter lunatic, totally out of his mind to say all that he said if it just wasn't true. The only other alternative Lewis says is this man, this man, and I would add this man whose teachings have transfixed the whole world. This man whose life has captured the heart of millions, billions even. This man whose impact on us is undiminished through 2,000 years. This man who has inspired love and life and light into millions of his followers. The only alternative is that this man, if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, then he's actually the Lord. And any middle road conclusion that he was a nice guy, a good man, and some kind of uh, uh, fluent teacher just makes no sense. Lewis puts it like this, and I close. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Not something you hear very often. Or he would be the devil of hell. Either a liar or a lunatic. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Our prayer as a church is that you will come to worship him as Lord and God and put your trust in him for this life and the life to come. Let's pray.